Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, always streaming on WOMR.org and the WOMR smartphone app. Today we're talking about Harvard Square, a small red brick human-scale marketplace in Cambridge that's known all over the world, home to Harvard University as well as bookstores, museums, and street buskers. It's a place that holds memories for everyone. I courted my wife in Harvard Square. If you're of a certain age, you may have seen Bob Dylan and Joan Baez perform at Club Passim or had a burger at the Tasty, which is right across JFK Street from the office window, stenciled Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, which was right above the Curious George store. But Harvard Square is not what it used to be. Just like every other unique marketplace from Greenwich Village to Telegraph Avenue, even to Commercial Street in Provincetown, the hateful changes are often attributed to greedy investors and rich outsiders, but the blame might also be shouldered on global economics and our own changing habits. Here to talk with me today about the changes in Harvard Square, why we love our marketplaces, and the tensions between dynamic markets and communities is Catherine J. Turco. She's an economic sociologist and professor of entrepreneurship at MIT. Her latest book is Harvard Square a love story. Catherine Turco, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. Really appreciate it. So can you explain why we develop passionate relationships with our local marketplaces? Sometimes we don't even realize it until they're gone, and then we mourn them. It has something to do with what sociologists call ontological security. What is that exactly? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, But it is a term that sociologists use just to refer to kind of having a stable and stabilizing sense of self and continuity in life. You know, you go to bed kind of thinking the world is one way, you wake up, the world still feels that way, and you still feel like you have a secure place in it. Um, And it relates to that question you asked about why do we develop these passionate relationships with marketplaces. Um, I, I think the answer is that marketplaces actually give us a lot of ontological security, but it's just not something we often give them credit for. You know, we're trained to think of markets uh, from the perspective of economic theory. They're systems of exchange for goods and services, but they actually give us a lot more than just the goods and services we get in them. Um, One of the things they give us are, you know, all those little daily and weekly routines and rituals that ground us, so many of which that like unfold in market settings, even over market transactions. Um, You know, part of why I wrote this book is my attachment to Harvard Square. And that attachment started early when my father and I had began a routine when I was in elementary school of coming in to Harvard Square, you know, every single Sunday morning, we would get a uh, bagel and cream cheese at one of the diners or cafes, we'd wander the aisles of Nini's Corner and out of town news. And, uh, you know, it really was a sacred ritual for us. It, It sort of gave my life a sort of a stability that I knew kind of every weekend we were going to have that routine. But almost everyone has routines like that. And a lot of them unfold in in kind of markets. So whether it's a morning coffee run or, you know, even kind of family Christmas shopping outings where you go to the same stores each year and get your stocking stuffers or just drinks with friends at the same bar each month. 
Um, you know, these things really ground us on a psychological level, but we don't think about it that often. And we don't really think about how the markets, the setting in which we're getting that sense of stability. Um, even more important than the routines are those attachments that we form through the routines. So, you know, why do I love Harvard Square? Well, I love it because I love my dad and because that bond that we forged was forged in part over bagels and cream cheese in Harvard Square. And, you know, I love Harvard Square because I love my college friends and, you know, the bonds that we formed being complete idiots over Crab Rangoon at the Hong Kong and Scorpion Bowls are really important kind of formative relationships for me in my life. And so, you know, I do think we fall in love with our marketplaces because we attach to one another in them and then we become attached to them. But as I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, a lot of what my book is about is it it's a really kind of complicated and tricky thing if when you fall in love with the marketplace. Well, and that's because marketplaces always change. But one of the right. remarkable things in your book is that you say that it's not only we think they change, um, you have done a tremendous amount of wonderful research and, I, and, and you and your research assistants have gone back a hundred years in um, or more in uh, newspapers and notes and his, the Cambridge Historical Society, etc. And people have always said, oh no, it's just not what it used to be. So are the changes unfolding now uh, very different in kind from those in the past? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and you're right. So, so one of the biggest sort of surprises of the first stage of this research for me was this discovery that, oh my God, Harvard Square has always been not what it used to be. I started the project thinking I was going to be writing about why Harvard Square wasn't what it used to be. It was at a time where you mentioned the Curious George store. The Curious George store was you know, on the brink of getting evicted because a new outside real estate investor had come in and bought the building in, in which it was located and was going to be doing a big renovation and raising rents. And, you know, there were more chain stores in Harvard Square and there was just a lot of upset over that. And I felt I got to understand this. Like, why isn't Harvard Square what it used to be? This this feels awful. And then, you know, I went back into the newspapers and one of the first things I found was a 1920. <laughs> You know, set of 1920 articles and meeting minutes uh, about the fact that at that time in that year, a New York syndicate had come in and bought a building along what was then Boylston Street, it was JFK Street, right across from where the Curious George store was, um, doubled the rent. And, you know, that led to the eviction of a grocery store called Wyeth and Sons that had been there for 50 years. And um, there was a big of controversy and a big kind of uproar at that time because Wyeth was this you know beloved part of the Harvard Square fabric. It was seen as being one of those establishments that had made the place what it was and it was unique and special. Um, it was caused such a big deal that the Harvard Square Business Association at the time had a whole meeting about the invasion of chain stores because there were grocery chain stores sort of starting to come on the scene at that time too and people thought that's what was going to replace Wyeth. Um, you know, this meeting about chain stores and the rent problem in Harvard Square. So I was like, oh, my God, this is deja vu. What's, what's going on? And this was 100 um, years ago. It was 100 years ago. And and then I kept going through, as you said, I went through, you know, thousands and thousands of old articles and pages of meeting minutes and, you know, uh, business archives. And what you find is the same discussions happened in the 30s and the 50s and the 70s, on and on. And each time people were kind of hearkening back to an earlier Harvard Square you know, and upset that Harvard Square now was no longer what it used to be. But the people in that prior time had also been doing that back to an earlier time. 
Um, and so that, I realized at that point I had a very different project on my hands, which was I was going to have to understand why Harvard Square had always been not what it used to be if I was going to understand anything about today. And so to your question that you asked about, you know, so what about the changes today? Are they same or different? Um, I would say that obviously in each period, the changes present themselves sort of differently, but the drivers of those changes have been by and large very consistent. So in each period you have, you know, the culture evolving and bringing with it kind of some new tastes and preferences, which pushes out some old businesses that were serving old tastes and preferences and brings in some new ones. We got, you know, new generations come on the scene. They like different things. New businesses sprout up to cater to them and old businesses die out. Technological changes render some businesses obsolete. Properties get sold. The new landlord comes in. They just paid a bunch of money. They want to return on their investment. They raise rent. Business owners die. You know, these things happen again and again. Recessions happen. Floods happen. Fires happen. Um, and so the, the underlying causes are sort of quite consistent. Um, there is one thing today that I think is similar to some things we've seen in the past, but I feel like is different enough in impact that um, it's just one I'll mention, which is it relates to the Internet. And so, you know, I came to think of local marketplaces like Harvard Square as platforms while I was doing this research. I mean, they really have been, you know, for hundreds of years, these have been the platforms that we went to to access the world and to connect with one another. They drew us like out of our houses into the streets to connect with one another. And today we have a new sexy platform that that sort of is where we go to shop and connect and watch movies. And it's it's, you know, kind of more alluring. It's perhaps more addictive than than the street level platform that we've had for so many years that we've been in a long term relationship with. Um, and it isn't the first time that we've had alternatives like that. So I don't want to say it's entirely different. Um, the Sears Roebuck catalog, you know, was an early example of something that let you stay at home and, you know, kind of browse through and buy things from your sofa or your kitchen table. Um, cars let us access marketplaces that were much further than the ones just outside our, our doors. Eventually, we were driving to malls, which was another kind of platform drawing us away from you know, of kind of local Main Street or downtown. But I do think that the, you know, Internet is a one, perhaps the biggest version of that threat that we've seen to date. Um, and so one of the questions I asked myself in writing this book was just, you know, kind of what might we lose in our social fabric, in our lives, if we eventually choose to only meet, you know, one another for coffee in the metaverse or only shop in the Amazon marketplace. Um, so... Yeah. So if you're joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about Harvard Square, but really all our favorite marketplaces, why we love them, why they change, and the forces that are responsible. My guest is MIT professor Catherine Turco, and her new book is Harvard Square, A Love Story. Catherine, your book is full of all these incredible controversies that have taken place in Harvard Square over the years. And they're really marvelous to read from afar. Um, there was the controversy over the Tasty Diner, which 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 the guy who owned the Tasty was actually this guy, George Avis, was actually my landlord. Uh, oh, that's amazing. Way, way back in the day. I imagine he's <laughs> that's gone. Wonderful. And that was when I was paying like 
incredibly cheap rent after college. <laughs> but of all the controversies in Harvard Square over the years, the one that most surprised me was the fight to keep the John F. Kennedy Memorial Library from being built there. JFK, to this day, is a god in Cambridge. Why was there a fight to keep his presidential library out of Harvard Square? Yeah, it was one of it was one of the more puzzling um, you know episodes that I found as well. I you know you've read the book. I the whole second part of the book uh, is organized around what I call these puzzles of crazy love. These moments where there was some huge emotional reaction to either proposed or actual changes in the square that from the outside looked completely bonkers, but that I really wanted to understand. Like I wanted to figure out, okay, what's the what's the emotional logic? you know, going on here. Um, and this was one of them, because as you said, I mean, JFK was a local hero. He loved Harvard Square. I mean, a lot of Harvard Square establishments had, you know, photos of him up on their walls. Um, and he wanted his presidential library to be there before he died. He had come and kind of scoped out locations for it right around the square. Uh, but after he died and when there was a proposal put forth to put the library on the old, where the old MBTA bus yards were. It's the area where now there's JFK Park and the Charles Hotel right along Memorial Drive. Um, there was just a huge sort of ex explosion of opposition to it from community members. Um, and, you know, and, and so I kind of dove in and tried to figure out like why, like what was going on with that. Um, and I came to see that, you know, the people who saw Harvard Square as their marketplace, their local marketplace, we're just really worried that this memorial to this, you know, beloved president was going to be bringing millions of tourists to the square each year. It was already bringing millions of people to Arlington Cemetery, his grave there. And they figured the library and memorial would be doing the same. That meant there'd be, you know, possibly tens of thousands of people on a given day in Harvard Square. And it wasn't just traffic and congestion, although that was a lot of, you know, some of the concern was around that. But a really central concern of people who lived around the square was that the, the marketplace itself was going to shift and it was no longer going to be serving them and their needs. It would start serving all these tourists. So there would be no more space for cleaners and tailors, you know, a local grocery or deli like Cardulo's or Sages. Um, and then instead there would be souvenir shops and fast food restaurants. And, um, and so they were worried that sort of this marketplace that had felt like theirs wasn't going to be theirs. And that it meant, a lot to them on different levels. So a lot of these people who had settled around Harvard Square had done so because of the character of the marketplace. Like this was, you know, in the 50s, Harvard Square was kind of this, you know, mod Main Street. It was kind of like this, the sexiest Main Street in America, in a sense. And, you know, that gave people who settled there kind of this sense of self and collective identity that they valued. Um, they really felt kind of, a con you know, a connectedness with the place and with one another in it. And so the idea that it would be completely transformed, that it would be taken over by outsiders was really unsettling to them. A little bit of a backstory there is they were already reeling from a whole different set of outsiders who were coming in and sort of in their minds taking over the marketplace, which was like the youth culture of the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and so, you know, what you saw was a sort of something you've seen, we've seen throughout human history of a group of people defending a kind of shared way of life but this is a really interesting case because it showed us just how much that sort of shared sense of life can be found in a marketplace and how much we kind of put in and get out of our marketplaces. You know, the, the fact of the matter was the sort of the marketplace that these people knew and loved 
it turned out to be more sacred to them than this sacred memorial was going to be. And so they opposed it and, and caused such an, such a problem for both the government and the Kennedy library corporation that eventually that, you know, those parties threw their hands up and we now know the Kennedy library is over in Dorchester. Um, so that, you know, the opponents defeated it um, being in Cambridge. I'm just curious, are there, I haven't been to the Kennedy library in Dorchester, but is it surrounded by all these t-shirt shops and all that stuff? <laughs> You know, that's a good question. I haven't been there in ages. And so when I first went there, it wasn't. But, you know, I mean, the, it, one of the one of my favorite sort of little nuggets that I found in my research was people took this so seriously. There was one woman in Cambridge who took it upon herself to to spend the summer while this controversy was, you know, unfolding, uh, driving around the United States to the other presidential libraries and counting uh, how many fast food restaurants and tchotchke stores there were in the vicinity of about four or five other presidential libraries. And she'd count the cars and, and the number of RVs that were in the parking lots. Um, so, you know, when I say that people took this seriously, people took this seriously. <laughs> they did. So I wonder if you can explain the economics of national brand stores and there are a ton of them in Harvard Square right now. And we see these shops replacing the local marketplaces that now have enormously high rents. And, and for instance, last time I was there, there's a Warby Parker and a Ray-Ban instead of this sleepy little optical shop that used to be right next to Curious George. So how, how do they... How do they afford these rents? Why would they stay open if their merchandise is too expensive for local customers? And 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 then sometimes, and I saw this on Bleecker Street in the village, these these stores will stay vacant for a long time. Yeah. What are the economics of all that? Sure. Uh, let me take the vacancy question second because I think it's a little bit different. But to the to the first question about, you know, kind of what's going on and how can they afford these rents? Um, Warby Parker is a great example. It's right across from where I live. Um, and, you know, they and stores like Ray-Ban and Patagonia um, that are all in the square have, you know, what we call today clicks and mortar strategies. So they're a little bit different than kind of the, you know, chain stores of old in that the, you know, storefronts are there still to sell products, but they're also functioning in a fundamentally different way. They're there as a showroom and a billboard for the brand and for the, the online strategy of these companies. And, you know, a place like Warby Parker expects to do a ton of its sales online. I mean, they started off doing only online and kind of backed into brick and mortar. Um, you know, I think underlying all this is, is an idea that because of the internet, shoppers have kind of moved some of our attachment from you know, physical stores to these brands that we encounter on multiple platforms. And so, you know, some of these businesses sort of, especially in a high visibility market, like you said, in New York or Harvard Square, where, you know, the billboard value is high because you get a lot of people coming through at, you know, of kind of the right age to, you know, to sort of market your brand to, they, they locate them there. And the Economics of, of this make it different than a traditional store. So if you think of a traditional brick and mortar retailer, what they have to cover their rent are just the sales that they're doing in that physical location. But something like Warby Parker that's selling you know, their products to people around the world online, 
they have all of those sales to cover their physical locations. Uh, and so it's just a, it's a fundamentally different business model and they get, they're getting kind of more leverage in that sense and, and they can pay higher rents as a result. If you just um, let, you me, about, let me just oh, tell people who we are, and then I'll get uh, get to vacancies. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. Today we're talking about the role of marketplaces in our lives and why they change. My guest is MIT professor Catherine J. Turco, and her new book is Harvard Square, A Love Story. Okay, so how can they possibly keep these stores vacant in, the, in these very expensive neighborhoods? Right. So, so vacancies are kind of a big topic in, you know, at the street level of marketplaces and in real estate cir circles, I'll show my hand and say, I hate vacancies for the most part, you know, unless they're there because a building is, you know, getting renovated. And so it had to be empty. I think that they, you know, have a lot of uh, negative externalities for the platform that is a marketplace, like they sort of <laughs> do more damage than good. Um, and, and one reason you see them I think is that, you know, property owners often simply hold out for the highest rent that they can get, even if it means that they're leaving a space empty. And so, you know, if you think about kind of who owns properties in markets like this, you know, some of them are investment firms that are op that own property in a bunch of different locations. So let's say you're an investment firm that owns commercial buildings in Soho, Venice Beach, and Harvard Square. Well, you know, it might be very lucrative for you and the best sort of economic decision for you to try to get an Apple store or, you know, some other big kind of brand to be in two or three of those locations. And so you're kind of back at your headquarters, you know, trying to strike that deal. That takes a long time to work out the details of that. Meanwhile, that spot is staying vacant at the street level. And so folks like me are walking by just getting pissed off seeing this empty spot wondering like, hey, why did you pay hundreds of million dollars for a building and now you're leaving it empty? But from their perspective, they're there kind of negotiating the best deal that they can kind of come up with. And that those deals, incidentally, take a heck of a lot longer to negotiate than if they just signed a lease with a local couple that wanted to start a restaurant and was going to get up and running really kind of quickly. Um, so that's one reason you see vacancies these days. Um, you know, a reason that comes up a, a lot of the time is simply when properties change hands, new owners are going to be very hesitant to accept lower rent than what they thought they could get when they bought the building. So, you know, usually you go to buy a building, you come up with some valuation, that valuation is based on some assumption of rent that you're going to get. And there are a variety of reasons that, um, you know, after doing that, you're not going to want to accept a lower rent. So sometimes people, you know, who own properties, if they have the capital to just sort of hang on and wait to see if they can get the higher rent, that's what they'll do. Um, you know, and then it drives those of us at the street level kind of bonkers because <laughs> we see these vacancies and we don't like them. So one local businessman in the book said that he felt like global shock had hit Harvard Square. Enormously well-capitalized enterprises were buying up village-like market this village-like marketplace, in many cases owned by sleepy family trusts. You write that it represents a worldwide trend in the real estate market industry called delocalization. Um, can you explain what that means? Sure. Yeah, so delocalization is a process that has been unfolding in commercial real estate for a few decades now. Um, if we go kind of way back, real estate used to be a predominantly local or regional game. You know, the people who owned properties tended to live 
pretty near those properties in that general geographic area. Um, but it has become a much more national and even global industry. And you know, there are these well-capitalized, sophisticated financial investors who are buying up large portfolios of commercial properties across multiple locations. Um, some of them are publicly traded real estate investment trusts. You often hear about REITs, that's what those are. Some of them are private equity firms who are investing capital from their limited partner investors like university endowments or insurance companies. Um, and others are just very, very wealthy individuals who are, you know, have real estate among the set of things they own in their family portfolio. Um, and kind of Harvard Square has all of the above and then also local landlords. And, you know, when it comes to those kind of, uh, say, multi-market investors, if we want to call them that, you know, the incentives of each of those, the REITs and the private equity firms, they vary a bit. But what is consistent is that, you know, for each one of them, Harvard Square is just one of a number of kind of high value real estate markets that they've targeted to own properties in. And um, in the, you know, in the book, I sort of make a point of taking a street level perspective. You know, I didn't want to sort of take the aerial view that economic theories tend to take of markets. I thought sort of I wanted to get down to the street and, you know, see how a market was kind of really like, you know, lived and composed and comprised down there. Um, and, I, you know, when I got to studying these individuals in the marketplace, these firms, I realized that, you know, they do in some ways have an aerial perspective. They are at that 10,000 foot view because the market that they're actually seeing and operating in is one that is traversing geographies. It is the global global market. And so one consequence of that, that different perspective, that even different market in which they're participating in, is that sometimes things that they're doing that make complete sense to them and are sort of you know logical decisions for them to do look crazy or dumb to us at the street level because we're seeing things from a very different way. In a sense, we're almost seeing a different marketplace. And that example that I said about we walk by and see a vacant spot and have no idea what someone could be thinking about that, uh, but you know, kind of, it's these it, these actors who are kind of in a different marketplace, in a sense. Um, and you know, so delocalization has kind of brought this new set of actors and new set of perspectives into our local markets, and they're now they are now a part of our local markets. So and so we have to, you know, sort of take that into account when we try to understand them. So here's my last question, and one of the things that really moved me in the book is that you looked at some of these big investors. And in some cases, as you said, they are located far, far away. Um, but in some cases, they're people who actually care very, mm -hmm. very deeply, very, much. very, very deeply about about the um, about the area. So take one minute. We have about a minute left. And I would just like sure. you to just tell us about the perspective of at least one person who is as we would think of them as a very, very rich <laughs> landlord but they really care about the area. Sure, so um, John Giovanni is a longtime property owner in Harvard Square. I profile him in the book. Um, you know, I came to know him through this research. He loves Harvard Square every bit as much as I do, as you do, as anyone else. Uh, his father was a real estate developer and landlord in the square, and John grew up you know, doing odd jobs at all the different buildings. He parked cars in his dad's Harvard Square parking garage before I think he even had a license. Um, and what he always loved about Harvard Square, coming into it all, you know, all those days as a kid, was 
how it brought different people together. You know, he loved that there were dignitaries and students and workers and professionals. And um, and he always had a soft spot for street performers. His kid now busks there. He raised money to have a memorial for one of the buskers, uh, one of a uh, puppeteer who passed away suddenly, who had always been on a corner in Brattle Street. So he, he truly loves Harvard Square. Um, he's also a guy who unapologetically rents to chain stores. Um, and to him, there is no conflict. And when you sort of understand his perspective, you start to kind of understand that. You know, he fought a lot of neighborhood opposition um, to put a Dunkin' Donuts in Harvard Square. And he will correctly point out today that if you go into that Dunkin' Donuts in the morning, who do you see in there? You see cops and construction workers. Um, you see MBTA workers like my grandfather, who was a bus driver in Harvard Square for years. And, and you know, um, I go in there every day and I see folks with the MBTA, you know, label that I recognize from, from his old work shirts. Um, so putting a Dunkin' Donuts there, it's a chain, but it is not inconsistent with the Harvard Square that John kind of loves and is truly deeply attached to. Um, so, yeah, I, I really I enjoyed getting to see these other perspectives, because I think when you really start to understand why people are doing the things they're doing, it's very hard to demonize them. You just start to see that they're human beings like the rest of us. And, you know, we sort of all love Harvard Square and we sometimes forget that, you know, we're sharing that love with the other people who also are attached to it. OK, I think we're going to have to leave it right there. My guest today has been MIT professor Catherine J. Turco. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Harvard Square, a love story, is really a beautiful blend of scholarship, narrative and nostalgia. It was recently published by Columbia University Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the changes that happen to the marketplaces we love. One interview at a time. Bye for now. 